0: Good morning. Our passage today comes from 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 15 through 27. Then he, that is Naaman, returned to the man of God, Elisha. He and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. But he, Elisha, said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon." When I bow myself in the house of Rimen, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman the Syrian, in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, is all well? And he said, all is well. My master has sent me to say, there have just now come, from, uh, come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, please uh, be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants, and they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house, and he sent the men away, and they departed. He went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper like snow. This is the word of God.
1: Well, good morning again, welcome. Welcome to Trinity. My name is Jonathan. If you haven't been here before, welcome to our church. We're a newer church. We're getting closer to our one-year anniversary, which is crazy to think. Uh, It's going to be in about a month from now around Easter time. So welcome to each of you. hope you had a good weekend. I had a a pretty full weekend. My son started playing lacrosse. They got smoked in their first or second game. It was like 11 to 2. I've completely confused, have no idea what's happening in the lacrosse game. Uh, so I kind of stood on the side and said, "Hit him, throw him down. I don't know what's happening." Um, I was also, as you may have heard, I, I throw in some illustrations from my family for, uh, here and there. Um, I got to coach Mason's basketball team. We made it to the championship yesterday. We were winning 11 to two at halftime, the li- high scoring game. And we lost. Uh, if a team scores two points in the first half, you should not lose that game. So I take full responsibility. For losing a game where the team only scored two, they hit five three-pointers in the second half, coming out of nowhere. Right? It was an amazing game, March Madness, literally. And so the boys, we were winning, and then they started losing. We got about a minute and a half left in the game. I don't know why I'm telling you the story, but they, um, they all started crying <laughs> before the game was even over. And I said, "We got a minute and a half left. Don't cry yet." And I'm starting to cry, and they're crying. But um, yeah, so we ended up losing. We had a big weekend, but we are here today. You have made it, I have made it. And we are in a series entitled Reenchantment Faith in a Secular Age. We have been exploring the realities of spiritual dis- disillusionment and disappointment as a starting point for this series. And uh, the reality is, we've all got issues that we're facing, don't we? We've all got storylines that you are living that you have brought into church and community today. You've got frustration. You've got apathy. You've got weariness. And oftentimes, if you've been part of the church, you have been told that the solution to those things, the spiritual malaise, is to just work harder, right? Try on Jesus again. Put in more time. Pray for longer periods. Read more scripture. Eat more kale. We live in California. Kale is an answer to all things, especially spiritual malaise. But you've been given all sorts of religious answers to a lot of the honest things that you experience. And I want to say, as we have been in this series, I don't want those ideas to discourage you. I want you to know that you are welcome into this community, no matter how much discouragement or disillusionment or disappointment or even disinterest that you actually have with Christianity. This is a place where you can come and say, I'm going to be joining myself with the expectation that this entire community is a work in progress. But I want to also say that we are going to lovingly and thoughtfully and intentionally do everything that we can to spark your heart again. That's what this theme is about. That's what this series is about, re-enchantment. There's a reality of disenchantment, but what would it look like for our hearts to beat again with the love of God and the reality of the gospel and the presence of Jesus through the Holy Spirit? You are welcome to bring whatever you want here, but we are going to lovingly see if the Spirit of God can bring us back bring us back to life. This week from 2 Kings chapter 5, we're going to be looking at a story of contrast that Jeff began last week. So I'm going to build on a little bit of what he showed us last week. We're going to be looking at someone who has an encounter with God, this man by the name of Naaman who leaves completely transformed. And we're going to contrast that with a different individual who has an encounter with God and nothing happens. He completely misses it. And part of what we want to ask is how can that happen? What's going on? So the three movements I'm going to take you through today as we go into the second half of chapter five, number one, the freeness of grace. Is that a word? I had to look it up, the freeness of grace. Number two, the financing of redemption. And number three, I'm going to look at why the gospel is actually so, so good. So the freeness of grace, the financing of redemption, and why the gospel is so good. So under point one, the freeness of grace. I'm actually going to take you back. If you have a a Bible app on your phone. If you brought a Bible today, I'd encourage you to bring one of the two of those. I'd love to see more Bibles at Trinity. It's become a little bit of an outdated habit to bring them, but we'd love for you to have them. We're not, we're not using the longer extended bulletin form anymore, and so it's only going to be on the screen. So if you want to see the text, have your Bible, have your phone. But I'm going to reread from 2 Kings chapter 5, the first verse, which was not read earlier. In this verse, we're introduced to a Syrian general By the name of Naaman. And we read Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor. Let me stop there. Naaman was a big deal. Naaman was a strategic, successful, battle tested military commander for the Syrian army, interestingly. He was most likely quite wealthy. He was socially respected. He was revered. He was a bit of a local legend and a local hero. He is introduced to us as Naaman, the man of valor, which says to me, dude's brave, right? Dude is brave, but he's also a leper. That's the introduction we're given to him. And that one fact discolors nearly every other characteristic About the man that we're introduced to. The fact that he is a leper made him an outsider. In the ancient Near East, leprosy in all of its shapes and sizes was socially stigmatized. It made him unclean, it prevented him from living the life he wanted, and evidently he couldn't find a solution for it in his own homeland of Syria. And through God's unexpected, amazing providence, there's a young lady who Jeff introduced us to last week. She is considered a servant girl. She is essentially a prisoner of war. In one of their raids, one of the Syrian raids in Israel, they ended up going into a certain village. They take a certain young lady, a young girl. She ends up being a servant girl in the household of Naaman, but she's from Israel, and she's seen things in her homeland. And so she kind of notices that Naaman's having a difficult time finding a solution to his skin condition. He is searching for a solution, and she leans over to him and whispers graciously, I think I know somebody who might be able to help you. His name is Elisha. He's a great prophet in my land. Now, at this point, you realize that this guy is absolutely desperate. He's willing to travel a long way. So he whispers to his boss. He whispers to the king I heard that there's somebody named Elisha. He's a prophet. This young lady has been gracious enough to share this with me. She likely shouldn't have shared that with me. I'm her enemy. I have captured her and brought her into my home. But there's somebody who might be able to help me. Can I go? He gets a blessing from the king, he gets a small entourage, and he gets a large amount of money, and he goes towards the land of Israel. And you remember that he comes to the home of Elisha the prophet, and you might remember in that story that Elisha doesn't even open the door. Do you remember that? You would think that the great prophet would come and meet the great general, but Elisha the prophet, he's kind of hiding. I don't know what he's doing. He's writing something. He's eating kale. He's doing something on the sides door comes knock on the door comes. he sends a servant to to intercept the great general, and the servant meets the Syrian general and gives him this instruction: "Go wash in the Jordan River seven times, and your skin shall be restored and Naaman, this mighty man of valor, he's not happy. he's not happy with that instruction. he's completely unimpressed, he expresses his frustration, he is angry, he likely feels insulted. He is not getting what he wants, or at least in the manner that he wants. He is somebody who is at the top of the pecking order. He is used to getting what he wants. And remember, what he really wants is magic, an incantation, and then a big bill at the end. That's really what he's looking for. He says, man, I thought you were going to come to the door, that you were going to wave your hands magically over my body and my leprosy, and that you were going to fix this thing. But you're telling me to go wash in your ugly old Jordan River seven times? I'm completely unimpressed. The rivers back in my homeland were much cleaner. So he has all this frustration. He's angsty. He's angry. You notice that he's got a temper. It's not until somebody comes to him and says, my master, my master, did not the prophet say to you, go and dip seven times? I think maybe you should just at least try it. See, all of the people back in his homeland, they had kind of waved their hands, and they had all these magic incantations, and they had thought maybe if we can kind of say it in the right way, do the magic formula, something's going to change, but nothing changed. But he expected the exact same thing when it comes to another prophet, because that's what he's gotten over and over and over again. It just hasn't worked. So he's frustrated that he doesn't get what he's expecting. But what he gets from Elisha is nearly the exact opposite no magic, no waving of the hands, not even a hello. He just gets the instruction go wash in the Jordan seven times. And despite his resistance, despite his temper, and despite his lack of faith, despite all of that frustration, when Naaman dipped in the Jordan that seventh time, The text says that he came out fully restored and completely healed. Or said a little bit differently, despite his pride and despite his ego and despite the fact that he was a commander of an enemy army, Naaman experienced the freeness of the grace of God and it softened his heart and it started to change his entire life right there on the spot. Look at verse 15, text that we read this morning. That's a little bit of the background getting us to verse 15. Then he returned to the man of God. This is Naaman, he and all his company. And he came and stood before Elisha. And he said, Behold, essentially, I'm clean. I dipped that seventh time. Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he, Elisha, said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. The Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to any God but the Lord. Despite all of the things that are working against him, Naaman experienced the grace of God, and he returns to Elisha to offer him a large amount of money. I don't know if you noticed this last time, but it's 750 pounds of silver that Naaman has brought with him from Syria, and it's 150 pounds of gold. This is a lot of money. Let me put this in perspective. One commentator says, the amount of silver alone amounted to five times the sum that Omri king of Israel had paid to purchase the entire city of Samaria. The amount of silver alone, five times more than somebody had paid for an entire city. They go on to say, Naaman closed out his bank account and emptied his pension plan to pay for his medical bills. But Elisha, Wouldn't take a dime. How come? Well, really, it's so Naaman could taste and see the difference grace would make on the palate of the human soul. See, Elisha robs Naaman of his ability to take any credit for his healing. Elisha wants there to be no confusion. The God of Israel, he can't be bribed. He can't be bought. He's not for sale Our our pocketbooks do not work with him. Money, power, fame, self-sacrifice might work with the hearts of other gods, but not on this one. Go wash in the Jordan seven times. End of story. see, friends, the moment that grace is merited, it has stopped being grace. Do you understand that? It's been manipulated into something that is not intended to be. The instant that grace has been conditionalized, it has been compromised. It's become a salary. Our children understand this. If you're a parent, you say to your children, I'm going to love you unconditionally. I'm going to love you no matter what. I'm going to love you even if we lose that game where it was 2 to 11 half time. I'm going to love you, Mason. You missed a big shot at the end of the game. I still love you, but do I? <laughs> right? Where you lean into your children you say, man, I'm going to love you no matter what you do, no matter what you show me. But the moment you start to kind of withdraw a little bit, you don't give that same affection. You don't give that same smile. Your children immediately understand the difference between affection that's based on the graciousness of a parent and affection that is earned. They're very different. And the experience of them is so different. And the prophet wants this individual to understand the profound difference. See, Elisha wouldn't take a dime because he wanted him to see the difference that grace can make on the palate of the human soul. Grace is the Christian distinctive. Jesus is the Christian distinctive. But the thing that Jesus provides the Christian narrative is grace. Every other system in the world runs on moralism or karma. You get back what you deserve. Here's how Bono frames it. Part of that quote is on the back of your worship guide. He says, you see, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, or in physics, in physical laws, every action is met by an equal or opposite one. It's clear to me that karma is at the heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet, along comes this idea called grace to upend all that. As you reap what you sow, so you will sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins unto the cross because I know who I am and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. When someone says that all the religions of the world are essentially headed in the same direction and essentially the same thing you should have a major red flag go up. I go, how could that be? How could that be true? I mean, if the bulk of the world religions run on moralism or karma, but that Christianity says the distinction is grace, how can those be the same thing? That you either earn your way to God or somebody's done it for you? See, and there's a freeness to the gospel. And that's what's going on in this story. I'm going to show you how it plays itself out. But part one is this profound free gift You've got millions of dollars offered to me. I want none of it because I want you to see that you didn't earn any of what you received. Right? God is gracious. Healing comes on His terms. So, the freeness of grace. Secondly, we're going to look at the financing of redemption. Glance at verse 19 with me. Verse 19. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, see, my master has spared this Naaman the Syrian and not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, is all well? And he said, all is well. My master has sent me to say, There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, Be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him, and he tied up the two talents of silver and two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants, and they carried them before Gehazi. This is a portion of the story that's going to start to contrast the individual who had an encounter with God, and left completely transformed, and somebody who has an encounter with God and completely misses it. If Naaman is an outside underdog in the first part of chapter 5, if he's somebody who we would not have expected to see it and get it, then what we have in Gehazi is nearly the exact opposite. He is the right-hand man of God's prophet. It's like he kind of lives with Yoda, right? He is the guy who's, who's getting all of the goods from the master. He is somebody who's essentially a seminarian. He's religious. He's an insider. He's clean. He doesn't have leprosy. He has seen the miracles that his master has performed, one of them being a resurrection from the dead. He has seen all of the goods. He lives with his master, and yet Gehazi completely misses the initiative of God, how God works, and what God is doing in this story. And you catch an early glimpse of Gehazi's attitude in verse 20. Glance at it, where he says, see, my master has spared this Naaman the Syrian. And most commentators think that this is pretty much a a prejudiced slight against Naaman. It's as if Gehazi is thinking to himself, this warlord gets to come to town, he gets a free lunch, he offers to pay, but my master won't accept it. What he's essentially saying is not on my watch. And so he decides of his own initiative to begin running, and this is where the running kind of goes right into a web of lies. It starts to spiral out of control. Gehazi of his own initiative, without being directed by Elisha, he takes off running after Naaman, and he falsely invokes the authority of his master. He essentially says, my master has sent me to say, did his master say any of that? Of course not, but he knows it's going to be a little bit of a sympathy story. That he can get the affection of this wealthy man, and he makes up a believable sympathy story that tugs on the emotions of Naaman. He essentially says, "Look, two poor seminarians have come to town. We didn't expect them. They're now staying in our home. Could you give us just a little bit of silver and a little bit of uh, a little bit of clothing for these young men?" And Naaman essentially says, "Well, of course, I offered that earlier." He initially just is going to take one bag of silver. He goes, but no, no, please take two bags of silver and some extra clothes. And so, essentially, Gehazi gets exactly what he came for: a little bit of cash, a little bit of comfort, and most likely a little bit of retribution against Israel's enemies, the Syrians. And so, this man starts to head home. And if you're reading through the details of the stories, the the spiral and the lies just get deeper. And he continues to make excuses. And I'm thinking to myself, man, this guy's got two servants with him. He's got a couple bags of silver. He's got these changes of clothing. He tells the servants when he knows that if he crosses over the hill, that his master might see him. So he says, servants, I'm good now. You can go. So he takes these bags of silver. He takes the clothing. He goes into the home. I'm imagining he's kind of looking around going, man, where's Elisha? Right? Where's Elisha? He hides it under the bed. He hides it in the closet. He hides it somewhere. He's thinking to himself, all right, I got what I came for and made it back home. He goes into the presence of Elisha, and Elisha, I love it, he goes, Gehazi, where you been? Gehazi, where have you been? And Gehazi, being evidently not very savvy, he goes, Oh, nowhere. Oh, nowhere. You're talking to a prophet of God. I mean, if you're going to do that to somebody, if you're going to make up a lie and excuse and kind of pretend that you went nowhere, do it to like the grocery store clerk or somebody, not the prophet. And the prophet goes, man, I know where you've been. I know what you've done. I know that you left and that you just came back. And they have this very, very tragic conversation. And at the end of that conversation, there is this reversal of fortunes, And because of the lies, because of the deception, because of the greed, because of the cover-up, God judges Gehazi and Elisha declares that the leprosy that once clung to Naaman would now cling to Gehazi and his descendants for generations. And the text ends by saying, And he went out from the presence of Elisha a leper like snow. Gotta stop and ask the question, why such a unique and hard sentence upon Gehazi? Right? Why such a unique and difficult sentence upon Gehazi? And in part, <clears throat> in part the answer is because Gehazi compromised the freeness of the gospel. Let me show you this. See, he twisted the grace of God into a form that it was never intended to take. If you are following this storyline, you notice that you've got this Syrian outsider with leprosy who's never heard of the God of Israel, who comes into contact with a servant girl, who says, you go to the land of Israel, meet a prophet, And there's resistance, and there's tension, and he doesn't want to dip in the Jordan, but he does, and he realizes, man, I've got an ego, I've got pride, I've got all these issues, but God has healed me. The freeness of the grace of God is erupting in this individual's life, and he wants to pay for it. I brought all this money, all this clothes, all this silver, all this gold, and Elisha goes, I don't want a dime of it. You are not allowed to go back to Syria and say, I paid for my healing look what God has done because I paid him off. He goes, man, you got to feel the experience of the freeness of God's grace. And so what happens is Elisha says, no, not one dime will be given to us because he doesn't want Naaman to confuse the freeness of the gospel and the freeness of God's grace with his ability to pay for it. And so Elisha knows that Gehazi's greed all those lies, that deception and the selfishness have only muddied and compromised Naaman's experience and Naaman's understanding of what God is doing and the way in which grace operates. I want you to notice carefully that the thing that Elisha critiques in the life of Gehazi is his timing. Look at verse 26. When he confronts Gehazi, he goes, where you been? Nowhere. And he kind of has this conversation. It's Gehazi, was it a time? to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? No, it wasn't the time, Gehazi. It wasn't a time to take. It was a time to give. It wasn't a time to confuse a man who was tasting grace for the first time. You've muddied the waters. This guy was saying to himself, there's no God like this. I'd have to pay a dime. And he freed me. He's released me. He's redeemed me. And you snuck up in and say, Can I have some money? So you're eroding the storyline of grace. And this matters immensely to the Lord. In the book of Galatians, writing to a young and impressionable church, the Apostle Paul tackles this exact same topic head on in Galatians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul writes, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. This is very unique, very strong language. What he's saying is anybody who preaches a different gospel, let him be damned. Because this is the only thing in the entire world that can save you. Do not compromise the gospel. He says it twice. Let him be a curse. Let him be a curse. And then in chapter 3, Paul goes on to say, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Having begun with the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? He goes, man, the gospel erupted in this young church and in this young community. You are being saved by grace. Somebody slipped in and told you, keep the law, keep circumcision, be obedient, be moral Christians, be people who are on the move, do something to meet God in the middle. He goes, who's bewitched you? all oh, foolish Galatians, come on. Do you not understand the freeness of the grace of God? There's no message like this. If anybody, and Paul goes, me included, if something gets twisted in my mind and my heart and I come in and kind of give you a different gospel, let me be sent out of the community and accursed. There's only one gospel. Why are you trying to add to it? What he's essentially saying is, why are you trying to finance your redemption? Why are you trying to finance your redemption? You're trying to and it simply won't work. If the backbone of Christianity is grace through faith in Jesus and Jesus alone, then to teach Jesus plus something else compromises the nature of the good news, and it is just like financing your redemption. And friends, I've got a penchant to do that, and most likely you do too. A couple of questions for you to think about. Why for so many of us has work become our greatest obsession? Why are we so consumed with what people say about us, our reputation, or our work? Most likely, you would not say, oh, it's because I'm financing my redemption. <laughs> Why are you so concerned about what people think about you, what they say about you, the quality of your work? Why can't you let your work go? Oh, it's not a big deal. I'm just financing my redemption, kind of, kind of nine to five. You know, I go to work, and I'm, but I'm really just financing my redemption. Why do you spend so much time on social media? Oh, it's because I'm financing my redemption. <laughs> Why are you so concerned about your children's performance, the way they perform at school, the way they perform at play? Why are you always concerned about every little detail of their life? See, often we're financing our redemption and we don't even know it, which simply means we are searching for something to save us, to prove that we are worth it, to put a stamp of approval on our presence, to tell the world that we are worth their time. There's that famous line from the movie Chariots of Fire where the British sprinter Harold Abrams confides that he has just 10 seconds and 100 yards to justify his existence. How do you justify yours? How do you justify yours? See, we may actually believe that God loves us, but our lives and our hearts and our motivations show us that his love is actually only half of the story, and what we're actually after is the love and attention and approval from one another. I know that he loves me, but do you love me? See, he's only half the story, and it's not good enough. It's not filling me up enough. His grace is not free enough. I know it's gracious, and I know there's this thing called the gospel. I know Jesus is real, and I know the storyline. But really what I'm looking for is affection to fill the story. I'm going to perform. I'm going to get you. I'm going to get your love. I'm going to get you to say I'm worth it. And we spend our entire lives in different ways, in different seasons, essentially financing our redemption. And here's the tragedy. Here's the tragedy. When we look to anything else to justify us, we sideline grace and we functionally render it inoperable. And when there's no grace, karma wins the day. Do you hear that? When there is no grace, karma wins the day. We reap what we've sown. We get what we actually deserve. And what was on the inside of Gehazi, all the greed, all the jealousy, all the spiritual pride, all the envy, all of that inner leprosy of the soul, God brought it out onto the surface, and that man left a leper. But here at the beginning of the story, you got a man who is a leper, who's got the same things, spiritual pride, he's got ego, he's got frustration, he's got temper, he's got anger issues, he's got a sinful heart, and that man, because of grace, leaves clean and white as snow. See the difference? They are miles apart. One man leaves clean. He is a leper. And the other man says, no, 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 I'm a compromised grace. And the inner leprosy of his soul, it's as if God said, you get what you want. You get what you deserve. And he brought what was on the inside of that man to the outside. God has the right to be able to do that. And it shows us just the the power and the beauty and the necessity of grace. Financing your redemption is not worth it. It's not worth it. Let me take it to the last part. The freeness of grace, the financing of redemption is part of my life, part of yours. The gospel can change that. So thirdly, let's look at why is the gospel so good? In short, it's because of a tremendous reversal of fortunes, isn't it? a tremendous reversal of fortunes. The gospel is so unbelievably good simply because I'm Naaman. I'm Naaman. And I'm carrying all the things that he carried. I got all that ego. I got all that pride. I got all those issues. I got all of the selfishness. I love me more than anything else in the entire world. And I step before this God and he says, because of grace and grace alone, you are clean, you are renewed, you can walk away not having to finance your life, your love, your worth, your redemption. I have done it for you. And the unique thing about this story and this reversal of fortunes is that there's another suffering servant in the story, and his name is not Gehazi. His name is Jesus. See, in this suffering servant, he is not the cause. He does not have to He is not the reason for the spiritual issues, for the manipulation, for the pride. He is not guilty of those things. This second suffering servant has come to redeem and change and absorb all of those things about my life and my heart. So when I step in front of God, I don't get what I deserve anymore. I get what Jesus has earned for me because when he dies with my sin and he rises again on that third day, grace (laughs) erupts from the empty tomb as well. That storyline is so different, so unique, so life-giving. In a world of justice, grace only works because justice has already been served. This is not pie-in-the-sky grace. This is the most costly form of grace in the entire world. Redemption can be free for us because it costs Jesus everything. But let me ask this question as I wrap it up. How should we then live in light of grace like this? In Luke chapter 17, Jesus heals a group of 10 lepers, and they met him at a distance, and they all cried out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on me. And in the story, Jesus heals all 10 of those lepers, but only one returned back to thank Jesus. Only one really felt the impact of the freeness of grace in his life, and he knew that he had to go back and thank the healer. And I want to simply say, I want to be the one. I want you to be the one. I want you to know that you were a leper, that you're crying out for help, that the master says, I will heal you. And then I want you to run back and say, oh Lord, I don't have to pay you. Man, I don't know how much money I've got. 750 of that, 150 of that. And he'll go, I don't need a dime. I don't need a dime from you. But I would appreciate and love if you would give me See, and he says, come into my presence. I have healed you. Now that the freeness of the gospel is taking effect, give it all to me. It's not a wage, it's not a tit for tat. He didn't go, I'll save you a little, you give me a little. He goes, I've saved you by grace, give me everything. And that giving over of everything to Jesus doesn't secure my salvation. I've already got it. But now that he has given it to me, I want to give it all. And what would it look like if there were a community of people that said, I'm giving all to a Savior who saved me from the leprosy of my soul. I deserve to stand before him and be condemned. But because of this great thing called the gospel and the reversal of fortune, there's this new state of affairs. Christianity is different than you expect it. It's different than the world expects. Some people are going to reject it, and some people are going to say, how come nobody ever told me? about the freeness of the gospel, about the beauty of redemption. I have spent my whole life financing my salvation, doing anything and everything I can to put the dots together, the pieces together so that I have a life worthy of somebody's attention. But in the gospel, I've got it. What part of your life, what part of your storyline needs to be redefined? As you enter into community and community groups, what part of your life can be discussed? What part of your life can be transformed? Where does Jesus say, enough of that? Let's go and have life over here. He wants that for you. We're going to keep going for it together. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity to dive into these stories. Naaman and Gehazi, but ultimately it's about Jesus. How unique that at the center of 2 Kings 5, second half, there's a suffering servant. He suffers because of his greed. But then we get to the gospel. There's a suffering servant who suffers because of my greed. Wow. There's no message like the gospel. I need to be reminded of how free it is. I compromise it all the time. But Lord Jesus, what would happen to our communities if it were set on fire through the Spirit's work, through us, the church, telling people about the freeness of the gospel. I think revival would break out. I think renewal would happen. I think families would be knit back together. I think transformation would become normal and not exceptional. We ask for that. We want that. But if we don't grapple with the leprosy of our sin, or the gospel won't be beautiful. So, Lord, ground us in our need. Don't just show me my skin condition. Show me my heart condition. That's not something I have to hide. That's something that you know fully all about. So come in and save. Come in and renew. Come in and rework. Come in and put back together. And may grace transform us all, we pray. In Jesus' great name, amen.